And we're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels in chronological order because our greatest goal in life is to know our Savior Jesus Christ for ourselves. And he has said in his word that the whole word, the volume of the book is written of him. All of scripture is about him. And so we dig into his word every week out of a desire to know him and draw closer to him for ourselves. In today's study, we're gonna find out why grace is so wonderful. And we're gonna see an amazing dinner scene play out that involves Jesus, an unbelieving Pharisee, and a prostitute, which sounds like the setup of a really sketchy joke, but it's not. It's in the Bible, I promise. Let's get into our study. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Matthew, first book of the New Testament, chapter 11, verse 20. It says this, Jesus is continuing to speak from last week. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So Jesus is speaking condemnation on specific cities where he's preached the gospel, he's done miracles, but the people did not repent, the people did not receive him. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Both of those are Jewish cities very close to Capernaum near the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. To give you some context here, Tyre and Sidon were were Gentile, non-Jewish, Phoenician cities on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Ezekiel 26, 27, and 28 prophesied very specifically that God would judge the cities of Tyre and Sidon and destroy them. And part of that destruction had already taken place. They were known, they had a reputation at that time as cities that had been destroyed by the judgment of God. So Jesus is saying, you know, Tyre and Sidon, those cities that were destroyed because they they wouldn't repent of their wickedness and I judged them. Yeah, if I had done there what I did in front of you, those cities would have repented even though you guys didn't. Then he goes on, verse 22, but I say to you, speaking of Chorazin and Bethsaida, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So Capernaum, the city that was chosen by Jesus to be his base of operations in northern Israel, gets an even harsher condemnation. Jesus says if he had done the same miracles and preached the same message in Sodom that he had done in Capernaum, they would have repented and the city would never have been destroyed. This is a big statement because if you don't know this, Sodom is one of these cities that then and now was held up as the example of a sinful, wicked, unrepentant city. And Jesus is hitting right on that intentionally and saying, you're worse, you're worse. So get this, there is no record that the people of Capernaum ever mocked or ridiculed Jesus. There's no record that they ever ran him out of town or threatened his life in Capernaum. But Jesus says that their sin is worse than the sin of Sodom. What's this grievous sin that the people of Capernaum had committed? The sin of Capernaum was indifference to Jesus. It was indifference to Jesus. They didn't persecute him in Capernaum. Write that down. They were just indifferent. They heard, they saw, and they just didn't care. According to Jesus, that's a terrible terrible place to be, the place of indifference. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks to the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, and this is what he says about those who are indifferent. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you are neither, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus doesn't have a high tolerance for indifference. And I share this because it is a myth that there are three places of spirituality. We sometimes think you are lost, you are not following Jesus, you are a casual, semi-indifferent Christian, or you are a hardcore Christian. Show me anywhere in the scriptures that talks about that middle position existing. The only time that middle position shows up is when Jesus is vomiting it out of his mouth. There is no distinction in the Bible between Christian and disciple. Jesus says either be all in or be all out. And you know why? 
Because we all know, don't we, that the reality is the worst testimony to Jesus and Christians and the church is people who sit in the middle. Jesus doesn't actually mean that much to their life. They're not actually following him. It doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. Jesus says, that position right there, that doesn't even exist. If you're there, you're over here. You're lost. I only have disciples. I'm not talking about being perfect or accomplished. I'm talking about your devotion to him. You can be a complete wreck and be at square one and be over here because you are devoted to him. You are pursuing him. It's not a position on a ladder. It's a condition of your heart. Jesus says it's a serious thing to be in the place of indifference. Verse 24, but I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum. If you go today to Israel, to the locations of those ancient cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, you will find beautiful, gorgeous scenery. You will find fertile, agriculturally ideal soil. You will find lakes and seas teeming with fish and life. And you will look at it and you will think this. Why is there nothing here? Because there is nothing there today except for archaeological digs excavating the ruins of those ancient cities. You can go there today and there's nothing there and it makes absolutely no sense because they should be teeming cities in these locations. The warning from Jesus is this, and those cities were destroyed a short time after Jesus said this. The warning is this, you might look healthy now. You might look like you're all together, and people might look in from the outside and say, man, they, they, they must be fine. Wherever they are spiritually, they must be fine. But if you've heard the gospel, if you've heard the words of Jesus, and you have rejected them, you're a dead city already. We're just waiting for it to play out. And I say that because I would be underselling it and doing you a disservice if I phrased it any other way. If you have heard the words of Jesus, you have heard the gospel and you have not responded, Jesus would say, you're already a dead city unless something changes. We're just waiting for time to pass. And if that's you, you're gonna have an opportunity to respond at the end of the service. Don't walk out of here today a dead city. Don't leave here that way. As a bonus note for you Bible students, it's just interesting to notice that the words of Jesus indicate that there will be degrees of punishment in hell, in eternity. There will be different levels. We're not talking about works in this case. That's another discussion. But he makes it clear there will be greater punishment for those who have heard the gospel many times, who have seen God work, who have had ample opportunity to respond and have not. The greater the opportunities that you've had, the more serious the judgment if you refuse to respond to the gospel. That's what Jesus is telling us. Let's continue in verse 25. Jesus shifts gears here and he says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. There's sarcasm in these words. There are Pharisees and scribes and religious experts in the audience as Jesus is praying this out loud. He's being sarcastic because he's calling the Jewish leaders and religious scholars wise and prudent. And he says they're not getting it, the wise and the prudent. Who's getting it? The babes, the infants, his followers. Here's the idea. Those who try to find God by being his equal. Those who try to ascend to God and meet him on intellectual common ground end up acting like fools. They're the ones who end up coming with the most stupid ideas and theories about the nature of reality but are fully convinced in their own minds that they are geniuses. Well, the ones who really understand God, the universe, and the true nature of reality are the ones those wise and prudent people would consider to be simpletons and intellectual infants. Jesus might have said it something like this. He might have said to them, you know the problem with all you experts? You're too smart to get it. You're too smart to get it. Your mind is in the way. 
because you can't accept how simple this is, that I am God and it is belief in me that unlocks everything. But instead they're saying, no, I will ascend mentally to the level of God and I will meet him on level footing, equal ground. You know, our galaxy, not our, not our universe, but our galaxy. And we know that to the best of our knowledge, there's an insane amount of galaxies. Just our galaxy, the Milky Way, is 100,000 light years long. 100,000 light years long. Traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. It would take you 100,000 years to travel the length of our galaxy. Seemingly an, an eternity. It's staggering. And in one of my favorite verses in his word, the Lord says he spans the universe between his thumb and his little finger. That's a big, big God. And what God is saying, he's saying, listen, only an idiot would drive away from the city lights on a cloudless night, look up to the heavens, see that, and say, I have determined there is no God. I figured it out. God says this is, this is a divine conspiracy at work here that the simple, the fools of this world have obtained the greatest knowledge that a human being could ever acquire while the wise and prudent of this world are left completely ignorant. Write this down. Wisdom is not accumulated through knowledge but through being with Jesus. Wisdom is not accumulated through knowledge, but through being with Jesus. When we study God's word, we don't study it because we're eager to add more information to our intellect. We study it because it is an extension of Jesus. We are studying him. We are being with him through his word. In the book of Acts, you might remember this. Peter and John are dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of religious elites in Israel. And this is what Acts 4.13 says of the Sanhedrin, all these religious experts. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. So the testimony of Peter and John went way beyond their academic bona fides, way beyond their academic credentials. And they, they looked at them and said, how is this possible? And the explanation they realized is they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They weren't smart, they were wise. There's a profound, profound difference. They've been with Jesus. Verse 26, Jesus continues praying publicly. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus claimed that everything, when I say everything, I mean everything, everything there is, in this dimension, in the dimensions that we cannot see, everything has been given to him by the Father. A claim that would be utterly blasphemous if he was anything except God himself. Just a quick side note here for you Bible students again. Verse 27 makes it clear that no one can know the Father except through Jesus. And unless Jesus wants that person to know the Father. So the next question becomes, so who does Jesus want to know the Father? Who does he want to know the Father? That question's answered in the very next verse. He says, come to me all. You might want to underline all. Come to me all, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus gives the invitation to all, to everybody, because he wants everybody, all, to come to know the Father through him. Note that this is an open invitation to all who hear but it's worded in such a way that you will only respond if you are willing to admit that you are weary, that you are in need of rest, that you need someone to give you that rest that you cannot obtain for yourself. It's an open invitation to everybody, but it requires an acknowledgement by each person that they need it. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, come to me if you're tired of trying to be a good person. Come to me if you're tired of trying to save yourself by living up to a certain standard. Come to me if you're ready and willing to say, I've realized I can't be a good enough person. 
to get to heaven on my own strength. Jesus says, if you're in that place and you perceive that and you understand that about yourself, come to me and I'll take you in and I'll give you rests. So the Pharisees wouldn't respond because they believed they didn't need that rest. They believed they were good enough. When you believe that, you don't need a savior. When Jesus offers everyone rest, write this down, he's talking about a permanent state of grace. He's offering a permanent state of grace that has nothing to do with your good works or efforts to be a good person. When he says rest, he's saying, I'm inviting you to come to a place where you are mine and you are in relationship with me, not in a way that you can lose and regain multiple times every day. I'm inviting you into my family to form a relationship with me. And I am not a fickle person to be in a relationship with. I will bind myself to you. And he's going to say that in even stronger terms as we read on. That's the invitation from Jesus. Verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You might remember this from an earlier study, but every rabbi had what was known as their yoke. And their yoke was their interpretation of Scripture, of Torah, of all the additional religious rules that the ruling religious class had added to Scripture. It was their interpretation of that. And to give you the most simple explanation, it was their theology of what it took to be saved, to fulfill the law. So every rabbi would preach and say, this is what I believe it takes. This is what I believe the Scriptures are saying. And then rabbis and followers of rabbis would find a rabbi whose teaching they believed was true, and then they would take that yoke upon themselves. The idea is they would try and be saved by living up to that rabbi's yoke, that rabbi's interpretation of scripture. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. He says, let me tell you how to be saved. And he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Nobody had ever equated rest with taking on any kind of theological yoke. When you took on a yoke, it was a list of things you had to do a list of criteria you had to meet and strive for every living, breathing second of your life. And here is Jesus saying, yeah, but my yoke will give you rest. Nobody ever associated rest with taking on a yoke before. You might know this too, that the term yoke was taken from a shaped piece of wood that was generally used to connect two oxen together so they would walk side by side and you would exponentially increase their power because whatever you were having them do, they would do it together, whether it was pulling a cart, a load, or a plow to till the soil in a field on a farm. They could do more when they were yoked together. And so the picture was when you would take a rabbi's yoke, it would be like one half was on the rabbi and you'd be taking the other half on yourself and you would be walking with them how they were going to try to live out their life, you were going to do it with them. That's the picture. Jesus is saying, bind yourself to me. Yoke with me. I'm the only one who really knows what it takes to be saved. And the good news is that it's not difficult. It's a light burden. Instead of finding a weight, you'll find rest. Verse 30, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Nobody had ever heard anything like that before. If you wanted to be taken really seriously as a rabbi, you would have to try and one-up the other rabbis, right? Oh, I've got a yoke. I've got a yoke, all right. You have to walk in a certain pattern under my yoke. It's more difficult than anybody else's. Only the best of the best can do it. That would be the recruiting pitch. And Jesus comes and he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're weary, come to me. Come to me. He says, this is a call for those of you who are ready to throw your hands up and say, I, I, can't, I can't live up to that. I can't live up to anything. I don't know what to do. I might as well give up. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. What, why is his burden light? Because he is the one carrying all the weight. He's the one carrying all of the weight. When you yoke with Jesus, he provides your righteousness. You don't provide it. He does. He makes the payment for your sins. He provides peace with the Father. He covers us with his grace. And then he says in his word, if you have any burdens left, give them to me. I'll take them from you. That's why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. What's left for us to do then? Enjoy him. That's what's left. Enjoy him. Rest in him. 
enjoy being in that place in that state of grace. It's quite an invitation. I just want to read this all together for you. Verse 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On your outline, you'll see this three simple steps to find rest for your soul. Come to Jesus. He says, come to me. Secondly, accept him as your salvation. Take my yoke upon you. And then thirdly, he says, learn from me. So learn from him. If you're looking to find rest in your spiritual life, your emotional life, come to Jesus. Accept him as your salvation and then learn from him. Learn of him is a more accurate translation. Get to know him. One of the reasons we're going through the life of Jesus chronologically is because it helps us understand what's really happening at any given point in the story more clearly. And it's really important this week because these events that we've just read about, what Jesus has just shared with an audience happens right before the next story that we're gonna read in Luke chapter seven. So make your way to Luke chapter seven, verse 36. We're going to find out that there were two main characters in the crowd when Jesus was speaking this out. When he's saying, come to me, all you who are weary. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. We're gonna find out there was a Pharisee named Simon who was in the crowd. And there was a woman who we're gonna find out was a prostitute as well in the crowd, listening in to these words of Jesus. Luke chapter seven, verse 36, it says, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, Jesus. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. You might remember that last week's study ended with the Bible telling us that the Pharisees had rejected the will of God for them. They refused to repent when John the Baptist preached repentance. And one of those Pharisees was a man named Simon who, like the other Pharisees who were there at the moment, didn't think that he needed to repent for anything. So he invites Jesus over. That's the setup for this interaction. We're going to see that Simon's invite to Jesus is not really sincere. There's a couple of possibilities. We know he doesn't believe in Jesus. Either he feels obligated to invite Jesus for dinner because Jesus is a rabbi, he's a Pharisee, and he feels like, well, I'm supposed to invite this guy over for dinner. He's a visiting rabbi. Why don't you come over for dinner? It's either that, or you may have encountered people like this because they're still everywhere today. He's a person who's basically saying, I would like to go toe-to-toe theologically with this Jesus guy. I'm gonna invite him. Let's have it out. Let's duke it out over our theology. Let's have a good old-fashioned debate. He's not open at all to Jesus, but he would love to get into an argument with Jesus. That's another possibility. One of those two things are probably likely. We're gonna see that Simon doesn't really have any respect for Jesus, and he won't honor him in any way when Jesus comes to his house for dinner. Jesus knows that, but he, he goes anyway. He goes anyway. We never see Jesus turn down an invitation to eat with someone. Either he loved people or he loved food. I think he loved people. <laughs> he loved people, we know that. Maybe both. He always goes wherever he's invited, even when the motives aren't completely pure. So to help visualize this scene in our mind, there were several customs that were practiced by anyone who was hosting a dinner. It's still custom in, in the Middle East to this day to greet someone with a kiss. And with a kiss, it's always like one, two, three on the cheek like that. It would be very weird if we did that here, but they did it back then and they still do it now in the Middle East. You would greet any guest with kisses on the cheek. It would also be expected that you would have someone available to wash the feet of a guest who was coming to your house because they would have gotten dirty walking on the roads in that time. If you had the means to have a servant, you would have a servant do it. If you didn't have any servants, you would wash the feet of your guests. Standard, standard courtesy. To not do that would be like you come into my house, it's raining, you walk in, we take off your jacket that's soaking wet and I don't offer to take your jacket. I just leave you there awkwardly. It would be like that sort of social faux pas. And then 2,000 years ago, they didn't have running water and so people weren't taking showers. So if it's summer and they're walking over to your house and coming in, they're not smelling all that great when they come in. So when someone came into your house, you would anoint them with a little bit of oil that had a strong fragrance and it was just culturally accepted. And wh what it's really saying is, you stink, let's do something about that. Come and eat with me. That's what's really going on. But everybody did it, so it was cool. Everybody knew the deal. We're gonna see that Simon doesn't offer any of these courtesies to Jesus. None of them. 
The dinner table would have been U-shaped with recliners all around it, and the recliners would have faced away from the table so that your head would be on one end of the recliner by the table and your feet would be pointing away. You would lean on your, your left arm, sit on your side, and use your right hand to eat food and sort of dip it in a fondue-style setup. And you'd use your right hand for eating because you would always use your left hand for something else really specific. If you can't read between the lines, you need to do some research on your own because that's about as far as I'm going. Nothing but the finest Bible teaching here at New Hope Church. I just want you to know that. I'm glad we've all learned something today. Verse 37, let's pick up our story. It says, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Saving you a long explanation, when the Bible says this woman was a sinner, it means that she was a prostitute. She wasn't committing credit card fraud. She was a prostitute. That's what it means. And it was customary in that day for dinners involving dignitaries to often be open to spectators. This is like really weird, but not that different from us. So if like celebrities or somebody who is somebody goes to have dinner at someone's house, you know, the paparazzi, TMZ is going to be outside the house snapping pictures. In this day, they didn't have that, but people in the town would want to get a look at whoever was coming in. They would love to hear what was going on in the conversation. So they would sort of hang out on the edge of the patio and just watch these people eating, listen to the conversation. Sometimes the doors would be open and, and people could literally wander in to maybe the big patio area that they were eating dinner in. And you would just be expected, you know, you just, you stay back on the side. You don't really interact with them, but you can just sort of stand there quietly and watch and listen to what they're talking about. They're so famous. I think if they did that today, people would still totally do that if it wasn't totally weird and you wouldn't get tasered by security. (laughs) But this is the scene going on. And this is how that woman gets into this party. This is how she gets in there. In that day, women were not invited to banquets, though. Jewish rabbis didn't even speak to women in public. They definitely didn't eat with them in public. And a woman of this type would not have been welcomed in the house of Simon the Pharisee. So what's she doing there? Why is she there? Well, as as we said earlier, all signs point to the fact that she has heard Jesus preaching and teaching right before this. She comes because she knows Jesus is there and she knows enough about him to look at Jesus and see something that she definitely needs. Jesus has just spoken about rest and peace and she must have heard that and thought, I don't even understand what that would feel like. I don't even know what that would feel like. She's an emotional wreck. Her life is just a mess. And here is this Jesus saying, if you're weary, come to me and I'll give you rest. And something in her said, there's no question I'm weary. There's no question I need what he's got. Let me go see if I can get it. And so she pursued Jesus courageously against many cultural taboos in the situation. There's no hope in her life, but she sees hope in Jesus. So with great courage, she enters the room where they're eating, and she brings with her this flask of fragrant oil. And the oil she has is not the same oil that you would use to anoint the head of your guests. It's something much stronger. Even though this is a little bit sketchy, Basically, all prostitutes at that time would carry this because it would need to mask the odor of their occupation that would be on them in this unhygienic time. So she has this more expensive, more fragrant oil with her as she goes into the building. And her plan, her plan is just to anoint the feet of Jesus as an act of worship and devotion to him. That's her only plan. But she gets in there. She gets into the presence of Jesus. And she loses it. She just loses it. If you've ever had that experience where you are just overwhelmed by who God is and who you are in comparison, his holiness, his righteousness, and our natural sinfulness, this comes cascading over her with force. There's something in her spirit that just recognizes that whoever this man is, he is something wholly set apart. He is something different. I'm nothing compared to him. And she is overwhelmed by her sin. 
what's weighing her down? And she just loses it. She breaks down. The Bible describes her tears as being literally like a waterfall. This isn't a couple of trickles down the cheek. The tears are pouring down, pouring down. She's weeping onto the feet of Jesus. And she, and she realizes that she can't anoint his feet with the oil until she dries his feet. And so she uses the only thing she has to do that. She uses her hair, which would have been scandalous to let it down like that. She does it. She wipes the feet of Jesus dry. Then she kisses them spontaneously and then anoints them with oil. She uses two items from her lifestyle of sin, two of her tools of the trade. The fragrant oil that she would use to mask the odor of her profession and her hair which she would have scandalously worn down to seduce men. She uses two items from her lifestyle of sin to minister to Jesus. And I love that because when Jesus gets into our lives, he is able to redeem brokenness in an amazing, amazing way. The parts of your life that you might think are irreparable and beyond help and beyond healing, Jesus says, not only can I restore those things, but I can restore them all the way to the place where they're used for my glory. That's what I can do. And we already see that taking place in the life of this woman. I want to take a moment to help you understand this is not Mary Magdalene that this is happening to right now. This is not Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. I put some things on your outline there. Mary Magdalene, as we'll soon read, had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus but there's nothing in the scriptures to imply that she was ever a prostitute. The confusion gives her an, an unnecessarily tarnished reputation. And Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, anointed Jesus' head in a very similar incident, but she anointed his head, not just his feet, with ointment. And she wiped his feet with her hair in the house of Simon the leper, a leper who had been healed. This is Simon the Pharisee. That event took place in Bethany near Jerusalem during Passion Week, the last week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Nobody had an issue with the woman's character there, but, but what Judas, the Bible tells us, objected to was the wastefulness of Mary of Bethany's act of worship to Jesus. This incident involves a woman who's not named. She's a sinner. She's a prostitute in the house of Simon the Pharisee in Galilee. She anoints Jesus' feet because she doesn't have a close enough relationship with him to feel comfortable anointing his head. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and Martha anointed his head because she already had a very close relationship with Jesus. And the objection to this woman is her moral depravity. Who is this woman to do this? Not the same person. Verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, this is Simon, saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Simon was embarrassed. He was embarrassed for himself and for his guests. We read this with spiritual insight, but if this happened in your home, this would be very, very awkward. You'd be like, Get the children out. Get the children out. I don't know what's going to happen next. People have been saying Jesus is a great prophet, but he's not apparently showing much prophetic discernment here because he doesn't even seem to realize who this woman is who's anointing his feet. So he must be a fraud. This is what Simon's thinking. He's got nothing but contempt for other people. And Simon is convinced that if Jesus knew who this woman was, he would have sent her away. He would have condemned her. He would have dismissed her. That's what a prophet would have done. Verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Jesus this far has been really gracious to Simon the Pharisee. You don't want to kiss me when I walk in? Okay. You don't want to wash my feet? Okay. You don't want to anoint me with all? Okay. I'm, I'm not going to expose you, even though I know exactly what's going on in your heart. I'm, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to expose you. But something has just happened here. You see, Simon has just crossed a line. He's hit a nerve with Jesus. The nerve he's hit is that this woman is essentially a brand new believer. She's a brand new believer. She's pouring out her affection to Jesus in the only way she knows how. There's nobody to tell her, hey, that's not appropriate. You shouldn't do that. She's just overwhelmed by her sinfulness and overwhelmed by the hope she sees in Jesus. And she is loving on Jesus as best she knows how. And Jesus says, hey, Simon, you just crossed 
the line. You see, you just slandered somebody that just came into my family. You just went after somebody and judged somebody harshly who just came into my family. We gotta fix this. But even now, instead of condemning Simon, Jesus is going to lovingly correct him. There's a difference between correction and condemnation. There's a big, big difference. Correction is in love. It's to hope that we will adjust the way we're going and change course. Condemnation says there's no point in you changing course. You're a lost cause. Jesus is going to correct Simon. And here's what's cool to me. Simon has just thought to himself, if Jesus was a real prophet, then he would know who it is who's touching him. What's subtly going on here is Jesus says, okay, not a real prophet. Let's try this. I'll read your mind right now. How's that for a real prophet? So Simon says, teacher, say it. And then Jesus says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarius was about a day's labor, so 500 denarii would have been about two years worth of full wages. He says, and when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. That last line, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, would be more accurately translated as her sins, which are many, are forgiven, and that's why she loved much. And I just say that Jesus is not saying she's forgiven because she loved much. He's saying she loved much because she was forgiven much. We're going to see in verse 50 that it was her faith that saved her and enabled her to see receive forgiveness from Jesus. Jesus says, but to whom little is forgiven, I think Jesus is really saying little in quotations, to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And so it's easy to read this story and think Jesus is telling off Simon, the evil, bad Pharisee, and he's loving on the woman, the sinner who recognizes her need for Christ. But that would be selling short what's really going on here, because Jesus equally loves Simon. He equally loves Simon, the hypocrite, the Pharisee. In the story Jesus tells, both people need forgiveness. Both people have a debt that they cannot repay. This woman is broken, so Jesus deals with her gently. Jesus doesn't come at her hard because there's nothing he needs to break through. Her heart is already ripped wide open, so Jesus goes in with gentleness. Simon's heart is completely closed, and so Jesus says, we need to use a little bit of a sharper tool here. We need to cut with a little more intentionality and a little bit deeper. So he takes a firmer but equally loving approach in dealing with Simon because he has to break through that calloused heart. And I find so much of myself in this story, and, and, and here's why. Because typically we come to Jesus and we are, we're overwhelmed by his love for us. Even if you were raised in a Christian home, you probably had some point some moment where you're just overwhelmed by what God did for us. Maybe you went to a camp. Maybe you got saved as an adult. But there's this moment where you just can't believe the goodness of God toward you, a sinner. And you are like, I am that woman in the story at the feet of Jesus weeping. I can't believe he loves me. And you're there. And then time goes by. Months go by. Years go by. Sometimes decades go by. And slowly we shift from being the woman in the story to being Simon the Pharisee. And slowly without realizing it, instead of viewing ourselves as the person who's been forgiven much, we begin to say, yeah, I've been forgiven, but not much. I've been forgiven little. And, and yeah, I, I needed a lot of grace when I came to Jesus then, but I've grown and so now I need less grace. I've graduated a few grades now. 
And so when we come to Jesus so much of the time, there's this outpouring of worship and devotion and affection. I'm going to get on my knees and worship God. I don't care who sees it. And then we grow up and we say, well, you know, I've matured a little bit now. I don't really need to be as desperate for God anymore. I haven't been forgiven much. I've been forgiven little. Yeah, I needed it, but not as much as I used to. When you get to that place, there's only one solution. Go back to the feet of Jesus. Enter his presence and be reminded of the debt he has paid for you. That is why Jesus has us take communion. That's why he has us take communion. That's why if you can take it every week, take it every week. Because we need that reminder. Hey, you know what? I need the blood of Jesus as much today as I did yesterday and as much as I will tomorrow and as much as I did when I first came to Christ. I have been forgiven much. And there's only one way our heart gets harder. We decide that we don't need to spend time at the feet of Jesus anymore. We say, you know what, I think I'm ready to sit down at the table now. Talk a little bit more as an equal. Don't ever get tired of being at the feet of Jesus. That's the place to be. It's the highest place you can be, at the feet of Jesus. Write this down. The solution to creeping self-righteousness is to return once again to the feet of Jesus. The solution to creeping self-righteousness is to return once again to the feet of Jesus. If you ever find that your heart has gone cold toward the Lord, that you've traded intellect for affection, if you ever find that you're just not that into worship, or you're just not that into any type of display of affection for the Lord, it's not your personality. It's your heart. And I say that as someone who's used the excuse before. It's, oh, it's just not my personality to be demonstrative. But for each of us, the truth is there's some sort of event we could go to, a sports game or a, a concert that would prove us to be absolute liars when we say we're not demonstrative. There's probably an interaction with customer service somewhere at some point that would prove that we are all demonstrative people. We're all demonstrative people. And the only way that we get to the place where we say, yeah, but I'm not demonstrative with God is when we feel like, you know, it's, it's a little bit beneath me. I've graduated past that. The good news is that Jesus doesn't only receive the repentant, broken sinner, but he also accepts the dinner invitation of the self-righteous Pharisee. Wherever you are today, let me say this as a fellow Pharisee, far too much of the time, he'll still come over. He'll still accept the invitation for dinner. Even when your heart is hard and you don't know what else to do other than invite him to come be with you, he'll still accept the invitation. Verse 48, it says, Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with them began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And there's no confusion here. Jesus is not making the claims of a prophet or a good man. He's claiming that he personally had the blanket ability to forgive sins, not just sins committed from one person to another, but all sin. He had the ability. Jesus, write this down, was claiming to be God. That's why these men were shocked. If he was a good prophet, he would have corrected these men. He would have said, whoa, no, no, I'm not claiming I can forgive sins. If he made that claim and wasn't a prophet, he would not be a good prophet. He would be a fraud. But he didn't correct them because he is God. And that is the dividing line between Christianity and everything else is the declaration that Jesus is God. Verse 50, then he said to the woman, your faith, underline faith, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Write this down. Like you and I, the woman was saved by faith. She was saved by faith. I love this. This woman heard Jesus preach this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And she said, that's me. That's me. I need that. And then she took action. She took the initiative to pursue Jesus and say, I want to accept your invitation. And she left her interaction with Jesus, hearing him say to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What about, what about my past? What about all that other stuff that we've done? Jesus said, it's done. It's over. I've forgiven you. There's nothing else to it. There's nothing else to it. You're mine now. Go in peace. That's done. She left with rest for her soul. Not everyone that Jesus healed was saved, but those who exhibited faith all were. We're going to share three quick verses here, and then we're going to wrap this up. We're just going to continue into the first three verses of Luke chapter 8. It says, Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, the twelve disciples. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. I always think there must have been so many interesting conversations when someone asked Mary Magdalene or uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, or Susanna, so how did you meet Jesus? Funny story, I was demon-possessed, and uh, he cast the demons out, and uh, we've, we've been buddies ever since. Cool, cool, all right. So that's how Jesus met them, and they became his followers. And this is one of the ways that Jesus was taken care of in his ministry. We don't realize this because we just read Jesus going place to place, but signs point to there being this whole essentially network of disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, working behind the scenes to provide for him food, a place to sleep for him and his disciples, money, clothing, whatever they needed. And it was very interesting because unlike any other rabbis at the time, Jesus had female disciples. None of the other rabbis had female disciples. But Jesus had female disciples and followers, and many of them followed through on the Jewish custom, which was for disciples to care for the rabbi. That was the model they functioned with. The idea is the rabbi is going to focus on scripture and on prayer and teaching people. And part of being a disciple, part of following that rabbi is making sure that his food, his shelter, and his finances are taken care of. And Jesus had a whole network of people who were working behind the scenes, many of them women, to take care of all the little details that helped his ministry run smoothly. And we don't know the names of most of them, but they played a vital role in the work of Jesus on the earth. When they're giving him food, they probably had no idea that they were a part of something so incredibly huge, so incredibly enormous. And that model continues all the way to today. All the way to today. There are so many opportunities to be used by God behind the scenes and be a part of something extraordinary. Jesus made sure that these few verses, which are really out of place, he made sure that they got in the Bible so that we would know and understand, hey, Jesus had a vital, vital place for women in his ministry. Mary Magdalene's name is, is probably from the Galilean town of Magdala, where she was most likely from. One more reason we know that she's not the woman in Luke chapter 7 is because it seems highly unlikely that Luke would introduce her by name in chapter 8 after she's just had an entire story devoted to her. So just one more reason we know that was not Mary Magdalene. So in conclusion, let's say this. The prostitute in the story is forever known as the woman who washed the feet of her Lord with her tears and found forgiveness and hope. Simon is forever known as the cold-hearted, self-righteous Pharisee who didn't extend even the most common of courtesies to Jesus. Let's think very, very carefully about which one of those characters we would like to be. I'm sure Simon was highly respected during his time on the earth. I'm sure Simon was viewed as someone who really had it all together, 
someone who was dignified, had gravitas, because he wouldn't lower himself to do what the woman did. But the woman's legacy is loving on Jesus. What a legacy that is. That's the legacy that I would rather have. And far too many of today's Christians, far too many of us have decided it's more important to keep our so-called dignity than to live in the rest and the peace of Jesus. That's why instead of saying, man, I, I need prayer, I need help, I need deliverance, we'd rather go to counseling for years and years and years. Sometimes for things that Jesus could deliver us from like that. Why? Because nobody will see us going to the counselor. We can keep our dignity. We can keep it all behind closed doors, keep the facade going, rather than say, hey, hey I, I need help. I'm breaking down here. I'm breaking down. I need help. You will never see a person do that in Scripture and see Jesus say, we'll go figure it out. He says, I've been waiting for you to say that. Now we can get down to business. I've got issues. You, you've got issues. I know you've got issues. You know I've got issues. <laughs> Peace and healing are found at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. But they'll never be found until we're ready to admit that we need his peace, that we need his rest, that we need his healing. It is far better to be broken than self-sufficient like Simon. Far better. Our sins are many and our failures are great. We don't need to mask them or hide them or deny them or defend them. All we need to do is confess them in brokenness to the Lord and spend time at his feet. Rest for your soul, rest for my soul is available right here, right now. The only question is, are we going to play games with God and keep our dignity? Or are we going to be healed by God? Rest for your soul. The ability to go in peace. That's the offer, always standing from Jesus. Would you bow your head and, and close your eyes? And you know what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Far better, far better to be broken at the feet of Jesus, to find rest, to find peace, than to claim to be self-sufficient and leave just as broken as you walked in, pretending that it's all together. Say, I need to spend some time at your feet, God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you never turn away a broken person, a broken heart. You never turn them away. But you wait for us to come towards you. And then you meet us. And we don't know how you do it, but we believe in faith that like every person you encountered in the scriptures that we will always leave from time at your feet healed at rest and full of your peace we believe that God and we receive that in Jesus name Father help us to leave here today unburdened and to leave our cares at your feet God thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. We love you, Jesus.